Hello everyone and welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach, your host for the Peace Alliance's Restorative Justice on the Rise ongoing telecouncil series. Please visit the Restorative Justice on the Rise website for upcoming guests, archives, and more at dopeace.us restorative-justice. That's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S. The archive that you're about to listen to is from Thursday, September 13th, 2012, and it features a brilliant conversation with Professor Mikhail Lubyansky from the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana, who's written some incredible articles alongside Dominic Barter and others in the field of restorative practices. I hope you enjoy this archive and to find out more, again, about this series and its guests, go to dopeace.us. Thank you. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach, your host of Restorative Justice on the Rise. This is an ongoing telecouncil series hosted also by the National Peace Alliance, it's always a pleasure to be here with you in this virtual council room. And really, what we are is a circle uh, of people from all over the world coming into dialogue with wayshowers on many different levels in the field of restorative justice, transformative justice, unitive justice, restorative circles, which are all intertwined, and social healing and beyond. So. Just looking forward to um, introducing to you in a moment our very special guest tonight. I just want to share a little bit with you about um, the vision of these telecouncils ongoing. As you know, many, many of you have participated in the last season and last year with me and us, and we have uh, the intention to build a further um, resource area and a place where people can come to tap into the education, educational tools, resources, models and guides and materials that are um, very much becoming present in the United States as well as beyond as how to implement circles and restorative justice and bridge it with the existing systems in our local communities. It's a very exciting time to be alive, uh, if not challenging, but there's so much that is happening right now, right under our noses. So it's an honor to be with you. And um, I'd like to encourage you all to check out the Peace Alliance website that features restorative justice. It's called Do Peace, D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S. So you just go to dopeace.us and click on the restorative justice tab. Um, we're announcing new guests very soon here for October and we're very excited to, to be planning on consolidating some resource materials with other partners as well, including um, the possibility of consolidating resources with our last week's guest, Michael Nagler of the Meta Center for Nonviolence. We had a wonderful council with him. Be looking for that audio um, very soon. You also will find the audio from Michelle Alexander, 
the author of The New Jim Crow, and our, our counsel with her that kicked off the series last week, which is a powerful place to be. If you weren't there, you can log in um, just by giving your email to dopeace.us and listen live there. Just a few notes about tonight's council and all the councils that we do together. Again, this is a circle, and it's meant to be a people's council. So we open up the call live for your questions. To do that, you simply press 1 on your keypad. Um, that's your telephone keypad. So if you're Skyping in, um, I'm not quite sure how, how that would work. But, but from your telephone keypad, you press 1. We'll open that up at about the half hour, and then towards the end of the call, we'll also be taking uh, comments and questions and opening up to dialogue. Tonight's very special guest is Professor Mikhail Lubyansky. Mikhail is a very interesting fellow. He is, um, among other things, he is with the Department of Psychology at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. He's the Secretary of Psychologists for Social Responsibility, also known as PsySR. He's a blogger at Psychology Today. He's the managing editor of Op-Ed News. And he also has a couple articles of note that I've already posted at the Do Peace Restorative Justice site. One of them was written in concert with Dominic Barter, of restorative circles, and it's called A Restorative Approach to Interpersonal Racial Conflict. He'll be talking a bit about that tonight as sort of a, a seg from our time with Michelle Alexander. The other article that I'd like to point you towards is called How Super is Superhero Justice, and that's published at Ticken online, which is ticken.org. That's T-I-K-K-U-N dot O-R-G. A little bit more about Mikhail. He is someone who is working on a book, actually, and um, maybe he'll give us a little bit more information as to where that stands. He's um, done some incredible work with Dominic Barter of Restorative Circles over the past, I believe, five years or so. And from that place, he has gone into his community in his local area and implemented a system with youth. He also has um, written extensively, I believe, about, about these experiences. So without further ado, Mikhail, I just would like to extend a very warm welcome to you tonight and ask if you might start by sharing with us how you came into restorative work and perhaps a bit about your personal journey. Mikhail, welcome. Hello. Thank you, Mark. Um, Molly, I'm going to change phones. It looks like uh, um, I finally got the landline to work. So excuse us listeners as I switch over. Wonderful. It looks like I have two mics on for you too. So feel free to switch over and welcome you again. Okay. Mikhail Lubyansky. Okay. Thanks. Can you, can I, Molly, can you hear me okay? Sound great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show and thank you so much for that uh, long and extensive introduction. It's really a thrill to be here. Um, I know that you've interviewed some of um, some of the folks most strongly associated with the restorative justice movement, people like Kate Pranis and Dominic Barter that I consider 
my mentors and teachers uh, and more recently colleagues, so it's really an honor to be here. Well, it's great to have you here, and I, I so appreciate the, the way that you're blending the work that you do at the university and the writing, as well as the hands-on work that I know that we're going to talk about later in the call tonight um, with youth. So yeah. if you could just, just give us a little background on how you came into your to restorative work. What inspired you? Um, anything you'd like to share with us tonight about that? Sure. Um, I came to the work not as an academic, uh, but I think um, probably most accurate to say as a parent. Um, in uh, This was maybe in 2007, 2006, 2007, I think, um, my wife and I were starting to get frustrated with um, how our parenting was going. Uh, we had a, um, you know, a six-year-old, and uh, we were using. We we're both psychologists, and um, we're both, you know, well-trained in behavioral methods, and uh, you know, we sort of knew how how to do that sort of thing. You know, if there's a behavior that you don't like, then you know, you find an appropriate punishment for that behavior, and then that behavior should decrease, uh, and then you find. Uh, um, a replacement behavior that you want instead, and you look for ways to uh, reinforce or reward that behavior, and that behavior should increase. Uh, and uh, so that's what we were doing, and we were trying to um, be consistent with the school, with the system that the school was using. They had something they called uh, a rainbow chart, in which the kids moved up levels or down levels depending on sort of their behavior, and uh, they could get prizes if they moved up levels and you know bad things happened if they moved down levels and so we try to have the same system at home and it just wasn't working um, you know the um, not only were the behaviors not getting better but um, we just weren't enjoying the experience of parenting and, and our six-year-old wasn't enjoying the experience of being parented so we started to look for something different um, and what we came across was uh, um, a system uh, uh, called nonviolent communication uh, and, and we started to learn that and uh, um, and that was um, that was a process uh, a challenging process um, and around uh, you know a year or so into us learning that work uh, and this is where it begins to intersect with uh, sort of the academic part of my life um, uh, I heard about a call for proposals uh, put out by the Kellogg Foundation for community racial healing grants and uh, that was really part of my uh, professional work for the past 15 years. Uh, and in our community here in Champaign-Urbana, we recently, at, at that time, we had um, an incident, uh, the kind of incident that I think has happened in many communities uh, at different points in time, where um, uh, a young black boy, a 15-year-old, was uh, shot and killed by police uh, in under circumstances that were um, troubling in the sense that uh, he was not armed. He was, uh, quote-unquote, breaking into a house that belonged to a family friend uh, who said that he was always welcome there. Uh, and it was really a tragedy that divided the community along, uh, not entirely, but also along racial lines, in part because our community here, like many communities in the United States, has a history of things like that happening to people like... Uh, you know, like the young man who was killed. Uh, so it seemed like a really um, important time for us to engage in a racial healing process and, and 
um, having the opportunity to have some financial financial support to engage in that work was really exciting to me. Uh, but I wasn't sure, um, you know, other than building a coalition of people in the community to write the grant with, I wasn't sure what I actually wanted to, um, you know, what what program I wanted to use to engage in the racial healing. Um, and so I started to ask people and, uh, you know, who's doing this? You know, where is this done where it's really worked? Uh, and I kept hearing Dominic Barter's name. Uh, and then I said, well, how do I get in touch with Dominic? And, and people would say, well, he's in Brazil. Uh, and then I said, okay, well, who else have you got? Because Brazil was really too far away. I couldn't possibly have access to somebody in Brazil. Um, and then I heard that Dominic was going to be in Oakland. Uh, and this is really before I knew much about restorative justice, just, you know, sort of, you know, knew of the idea, knew very little about it, didn't even know that what I was going to come across was part of what we, you know, can now see as part of the restorative justice movement, um, but just decided to, to show up in Oakland for a learning event that Dominic was doing there. Um, signed up for a five-day event, uh, and... 15 minutes into the first day, uh, I had the experience, I remember thinking to myself, this is it. This is exactly what I'm looking for. Um, and so I've been sort of on the journey since of trying to, um, you know, first trying to learn and understand and then trying to integrate it into my own life. And then in the, just in the last maybe year and a half, um, trying to integrate it into the professional work that I'm doing. Kyle, what is restorative justice to you? And also, why, why do you feel that restorative circles may answer to uh, a much deeper need than, say, other forms of justice, including punitive? Mm. So that's a big question. But start with with what you feel personally, that restorative justice is? What is it? Sure. Um, yeah, I need to come up with a, like a 10-word definition. Uh, but to me, restorative approaches uh, or restorative practices, uh, which I prefer to the term restorative justice, uh, only because I associate restorative practices with conflict in general and not just um, acts of you know, criminal. You know, I think of justice as criminal justice. Um, and then I want to think about restorative practices as being applicable to conflict in general. Uh, and to me, it's an approach that um, that values everybody's needs and tries to repair the harm uh, first by having people understand the harm that was done and then um, find ways to move forward together in a way that works for everybody. Um, kind of a relatively simple um, uh, definition, uh, but I think in, you know, if it comes down to one word, uh, it's truth for me, that restorative practices are a place where, where people speak truth uh, in a way that they don't in, uh, in any other uh, justice system that I've seen. Because I think uh, the way justice is usually done is that the system is designed so it, it creates liars out of honest people. Um, you know, you're, it's set up so that you can get away with more or you can benefit more by not telling the truth. So people n don't tell the truth. I, 
I really appreciate, too, the, uh, the more expansive definition that you provide instead of it being just limited to perhaps um, our understanding of, of the old paradigm of justice. We're opening it up to perhaps a new place of understanding that this is about our everyday lives. It's not just about the so-called criminal justice system. Is, is that what I was hearing from you? Mm, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's restorative uh, practices have become part of how we do conflict in our family. I guess it's, you know, another way to say it is we have a justice system in our family the same way that everybody, that every family has a justice system um, and ours, our system is restorative. Um, and we've adapted uh, Dominic's model, you know, to work within our smaller, tighter um, system that has smaller people, um, and you know, we so we've we've tweaked it so it works for us. But the principles on which the restorative system model is based on are the same. And as far as I'm concerned, we're what we're doing is a restorative circle. We're just doing it a little differently. I know. I know we already have hands going up tonight um, to for the council members. So uh, if I could just ask them, you all to just hold on for a, just a brief moment. Mikhail, I'd like to, if you would, go in for just a moment to speak to those principles. And I know um, my first direct experience recently up in Denver at the Denver Restorative Justice, at the Colorado Restorative Justice Summit with Dominic was a deep eye-opener. I already knew of the power of restorative circles. I could feel that and very much resonated with it. But... Dominic actually played out, um, or I wouldn't say, um, I'd say it a different way. He helped to convene um, with everyone particular circles that were initiated with real um, con conflict issues within the members of, of the circle. And he pointed out that there were five basic questions that he, he uses. And I'm wondering, is there any chance that we could hear from you what those five basic questions are um, when you set up a circle and are a facilitator. Could you share those with us? Uh, it, I'm not sure which questions you're referring to. The first thought I came up with was five questions uh, that kind of guide the creation of a system, you know, which have to do with consulting um, individuals with both structural and informal power, uh, identifying where circles will be held, identifying how circles can be initiated. Is that what you're thinking of? That's excellent. And what, what I'm thinking of specifically is, um, I, I believe the first question is uh, just recounting what occurred. Um, so like the specific questions that go into, uh, that lead into the actual, not the pre-circle, but the actual circle. Yeah, yeah, there, there are three questions there are three sort of guiding questions that I'm aware of, um, and the three questions are designed to kind of orient us to the present and reestablish the lines of communication, which may not exist. Uh, there's, uh, I was asked to facilitate a circle um, in, that will take place uh, in October uh, between um, a young woman and, uh, well, a, little, oh, a young woman my age, near 40, uh, and her mother, who she hasn't spoken to in about 25 years. Um, so before there's any uh, possibility of 
um, you know, understanding each other and understanding what happened 25 years ago, uh, we're going to have to create a space where the two of them uh, are just able to reestablish the fact that they can talk to each other and hear each other and be with each other uh, while talking. Um, and so the first part of the circle is designed to do that just to kind of orient us to the present. And that question is, how are you right now in uh, relation to the act and its consequences? Um, and then the second question takes us back, uh, and it's the question that kind of deals with the self-responsibility, uh, what some people call accountability, uh, where we try to uh, understand from each person's perspective what they were looking for when they made the decisions that they did, when they made the choices that they did, to say what they said, to do what they did. Uh, and that question is, um, what were you looking for when you chose to act? Um, and that's asked of everyone, the person who did the harm and the person who received the harm, because that person acted also. They, they reacted, they responded to whatever uh, the other person did. Um, and so the, the answer to that question is still meaningful. You know, what were you looking for? What did you want to happen? Um, and these two questions make up, uh, I'd say, maybe 80, maybe 85% of the, um, you know, in terms of the time. Uh, you know, we stay in this, in, with these two questions probably for most of the circle uh, before we move on to the last phase, which is the action phase and the future-oriented phase. And, and the question there is just, what do you want to happen next uh, together um, to restore things, to fix things? Uh, what do you have to offer? What do you have to request? Those, I believe, were the questions I was thinking of. Thank you. I, um, and one of the other aspects of, of the circle, too, seems to be uh, the removing of, of the facilitator, like for example, Dominic was very very much emphasizing the, that this is you know to remove the attention from him, remove uh, the attention of him as facilitator. So one of the the brilliant things about restorative circles is that it really acknowledges the um, co-creative uh, responsibility accountability of the circle. Have any comments about that before we? I'd like to open it up to uh, our council members here in a moment for a question. Yeah, uh, yeah, I love that distinction. It's one of the it's one of the ways that to me restorative circles are different from other restorative practices I'm familiar with. It, they're designed to be really community owned, and so the person offering facilitation is is not. Um, in a professional role, but in the role of being a community member who has facilitation skills that is willing uh, and able to support this particular conflict. And today he or she's facilitating, and next week he or she may sit in the circle as a participant with somebody else facilitating. Uh, and in effect, that's how, you know, that in our little family system at home, that's exactly how it works. Uh, sometimes uh, one person facilitates, sometimes another. Uh, and my five-year-old is already uh, not facilitating, but really eager to, uh, because she's watching her brother do it a little bit. And so she, she says, "Can I facilitate?" Uh, and she, she and and she can almost. You know, it's just asking the questions, creating the space, reminding the participants um, that uh, about the dialogue model that we've agreed to use, um, and then just. Um, you know, holding that space for the restorative work to happen. Mm 
I just want to pause here and, and welcome, if you're arriving late, we're uh, sharing with Professor Mikhail Lubyansky, Ph.D., and he is uh, deep into his community work as well as uh, an academic, although the lead into his work in the world was certainly, as you were saying earlier, Mikhail, uh, not led by your academic work. I'd like to open it up to anybody that might have a question tonight here at this point, um, pressing one on your keypad, telephone keypad that is, if you'd like to make a comment or ask a question. Welcome, Patrick. Hello. Hi, Pat. How are you? Hey, brother. I'm great. How are you tonight? All right. I have a question. I'm, I'm really uh, fond of Elaine's uh, uh, article that she wrote on the process that you use in your family. So I'm wondering if you would, because I'm sure there are quite a few callers that are enticed by the idea that you could actually have a five-year-old who gets close enough to understanding this process. And the questions uh, and the article that she wrote I think would be very valuable for the listeners to be able to connect with. So could you give them a way to connect with that article and then explain briefly the questions that you ask in the circle as well as the dialogue process? I think that's really important to understand. Thank you. Thanks, Pat. Um, I'll see if I can uh, – um, I don't have the URL uh, memorized for that article, but I'll see if I can uh, – find it, or, or maybe it's something that I can share with Molly and she can post later? Absolutely. We can post that, uh, as I've already posted a couple of your articles, on yeah. the UP.US website. Absolutely. Yeah, great. So I won't look for it now, but I can describe the process. We, we did simplify it to use with, uh, um, as, uh, as Elaine described in the article, um, with little people and little conflicts. Um, and, and we don't mean to diminish the, the value and the worth of either when we say that. Um, so we've kind of, re one of the things we did is we removed the three, uh, we combined the first two questions into a single question. And that question is essentially, you know, what do you want the other person to know? Um, and one of the reasons that we did that is because um, with kids especially, we try to do this um, right in the moment when there's conflict, whatever it is. You know, they're fighting over, um, you know, a, a toy that, or, um, you know, whatever it is that they, that they want to do. Sometimes they fight over cups. Um, sometimes, you know, just deciding, you know, who, who's going to do what with which parent. Uh, so we'll just do it in the moment. What do you want him to know? Uh, and then we'll turn to the listener uh, and say, what did you hear him or her say? Uh, and then we'll turn back to the speaker and say, is that it? Is that what you wanted him to know? Uh, and if not, there's a clarification, and we'll do the reflection process again. Um, and then we'll turn back to the, uh, we'll turn to the original listener, and that listener becomes the speaker. And we'll ask, okay, now what do you want your sister to know? Uh, and then whatever he says, we'll turn to, to his sister and say, what did you hear, what did you hear him saying? Uh, and then we'll turn back to Aaron and say, is that, is that it? Is that what you wanted her to know? Uh, we'll give each, kids, each of the kids maybe two turns, um, not because uh, uh, that will cover everything that they could possibly say, but because we've learned that uh, in, in those two turns, uh, everything that's really important gets, gets said, uh, and then the things that maybe are not so important get left out, um, and that's okay. If they're important, they'll come back. 
Um, and then we'll ask the, the last question, which is, okay, what do you want, what do you want to happen next? Um, and this is a fun part because what they work out at that point is, uh, you know, sometimes things that their mom and I would never have thought of. Really? That works for both of you? And sometimes there are things that we would have thought of, but, we're, but I'm completely convinced that if we had suggested them, the kids would have turned us down because it wasn't their idea. Uh, so that's been our experience. And then the hard part is, you know, kids will, um, you know, in, in all families, kids will sometimes reject the ideas, the suggestions that the parents want. And so in our house, uh, the kids will sometimes reject the offer of a restorative process. Um, and sometimes they've gone for weeks without agreeing to do one. Um, and then they did uh, conflict the old way, you know, fighting, disagreeing, uh, staying mad at each other for days. Uh, and then eventually we remind them that we have tools uh, and the tools are only useful if we use them. Um, and so, you know, we use them more sometimes and less other times. Uh, but we tend to like what happens when we use them. Wow, this is really wonderful, Mikhail, because it really does start at this level. And we know that in, uh, in the United States in general and, 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 of course, worldwide, we have models that are perhaps even considered further ahead, like in New Zealand. But simply uh, really recognizing the power of our our individual actions uh, within our families, ourselves, and our communities to seed restorative practices. Um, and this, this is a good place, uh, I feel, to go into that very thing. Um, we'd like to talk tonight perhaps a little bit about feeding restorative circles and restorative practices in the U United States, and also, of course, pointing towards your work um, and your service at your local juvenile detention center, which is where most of your applied work happens. So could, could we go into that for a bit here? Sure. Um, it's where my applied work happens and also where a lot of my learning happens these days. <laughs> um, and your applied work, of course, is also at home. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm, I'm thrilled that you shared that with us tonight. Um, it, it wasn't something that you and I had chatted about much, but it, it's right. very key and integral to this. So thank you. It is. It's really important to me that, um, that whatever community work I'm doing around restorative practices, uh, that it's clear both to me and to the people that I'm trying to work with that this is, that this is something that's part of my own life. Uh, that yeah, I, don't, I don't want to take something that I think is good for somebody else and I'm not willing to do you know, with myself and say, well, mm -hmm. go do this. Uh, if it's really worth doing, then why am I not doing it? So it's really, that piece is really important to me. I'm glad to have a chance to talk about it. So in the yeah, go ahead and start with um, let let's start with the the juvenile detention center work that you're doing, and then I'm sure we'll naturally go into how you see um, restorative circles being seated in the United States and and such because I'm sure it's a part sure. of what you're doing with the juvenile detention center. 
Well, I, I want to say, first of all, that I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing at the Juvenile Detention Center uh, because uh, they are um, superintendent, Connie Kaiser, um, and the staff have, have welcomed me and, and invited me and uh, allowed me to, to work with them and work with the kids. And, and so that's really, you know, it's a lot of what we do is on the basis of relationships and, um, you know, some, the, you know, those relationships open doors. So uh, I'm grateful to have that opportunity. We, nothing would be happening if, um, if they didn't recognize that there were limitations to uh, conventional ways of, you know, quote unquote, doing justice and that there were benefits to these, um, you know, less conventional restorative uh, approaches. So they've been really generous, and I just want to start by really acknowledging that generosity. Um, Mikhail, let, let me just pause you for a moment. I have a very sure. simple question that I think is really important. Um, I know for myself and probably for many of us in this council, did they approach you or did you approach them? How did it begin? Yeah, that's no, that's a really good question. Um, uh, I approached them, but the relationship between our department, or more specifically our clinical community psychology program, a subsection of our department, uh, we've had a relationship with the juvenile detention center previously, before I started, before I approached them about doing the restorative work. Um, and in fact, there are other faculty doing other things at the juvenile detention center. Uh, specifically right now, uh, Edelyn Verona is doing um, uh, um, DBT groups, um, uh, dialectic behavioral therapy, and, and um, just working with the young people uh, with that. Uh, so there, that relationship has been established, and, um, and it already allowed me a foot in. So when I came to talk to Connie about uh, restorative practices and like what I thought we might be able to do there, um, you know, there was already some trust about working with the psychology department, uh, number one. And then number two, uh, she had already, she was already familiar with restorative practices. I didn't have to sell her on it. Um, you know, she had already done her own reading and was already sort of uh, uh, convinced that there was benefit to doing this work. Um, so that made it easy. So we started... Um, Keep going, please. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we started, uh, you know, we, kind of, we didn't know what we were going to do. Uh, I didn't have any model. I, I wasn't familiar with anything happening at a different juvenile detention center, although I'm sure that there are restorative programs at other juvenile detention centers. I just didn't know about them. Uh, so we were trying to create something together, and what we decided was that it made sense for me to start working with staff before I started working with the, with the young people. Uh, to, get them on, to get everybody on the same page, to try to get some buy-in, to identify potential uh, issues that might come up before they came up with the kids, uh, to, um, to co-create together with staff something that might be uh, workable given some of the uh, logistical challenges at, the J, at this JDC. And one of those logistical challenges and something that is still like every week that I'm there, uh, it's, it, it's, a, um, it's a challenge in terms of like, how do you, do, how do you deal with this, is that this is a relatively short-term uh, facility. 
So some, some of the kids are there for over a year, uh, but more frequently they're there for uh, um, just a span of weeks, sometimes as few as three to four weeks. Um, and what that means is that if, if, uh, if I and my associates are there once a week, then uh, when I come back the next week, you know, maybe a third of the kids will be gone. There'll be a new third uh, that have never seen me before, don't know anything about what we're doing, and are essentially starting from scratch. So it kind of makes it hard to, to build towards something. And that's something that, that you know, we're still trying to figure out how to, how to work with. Um, so we work, I work with the staff for, um, on a weekly basis, uh, you know, some weeks off. Uh, and there are multiple shifts. So this was, you know, there were two day shifts, two night shifts, um, you know, so working with one shift at a time uh, for a period of months. Um, just introducing them to the ideas. Many of the staff have not heard of restorative practices, um, and and even if they have, they have they had not heard of restorative circles in particular. Um, so just uh, hanging out with them, uh, sharing ideas, uh, you know, playing a few videos, doing some role plays, um, you know, just um, you know, trying to find ways of uh, of learning together. Um, and then uh, after, after those uh, months, uh, we decided that uh, we did want to go forward and that we were ready to go forward and to have me start to work with the kids. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so, you know, we started. And, uh, um, you know, again, we're kind of making things up on the fly in the sense that, uh, again, I didn't have a model. Uh, I've been, at, by that point, I was used to, hmm? Excuse me for interrupting, but I, I just would like to ask you: Do you have a model now, or do you feel like it's a it's a work in progress um, for for different reasons? I definitely think it's a work in progress. I've <laughs> I've I've also, but there is something now that I've um, you know that, and this is with Elaine uh, um, that we've developed that I think um, is a pretty effective way of engaging the work. Uh, and what that looks like is um, to jump right into essentially, um, uh, you know, what Dominic calls semi-simulated circles. Um, semi-simulated in the sense that for one person, uh, it's a real conflict. Uh, and then we identify other people that need to be present to engage with that conflict. And those roles are filled by the other people in the room who are not the real people. Like surrogates, right? What's that? Uh, like perhaps what might be called a surrogate? Yeah, yeah, except that um, I think we do it a little bit differently than a surrogate in the sense that the person who's, who's playing that role does not pretend to be that person, uh, but, pre but pretends to be themselves as though they had done that particular thing. So uh, Dominic uses a sports metaphor that I really like. Uh, you know, if you're the uh, point guard uh, sitting on the bench and the coach says, hey, get in, get in there for Smith, uh, you're not going to pretend to be Smith. You're going to be yourself playing the same position that Smith played. Uh, so we do it the same way because uh, we don't know how to be other people. Uh, you know, most of us are not good actors. And then even if we were, we don't have enough information about this other person to to really have any sense for how he or she would act in any particular circumstance. 
So we just we just were just ourselves, as though we had uh, spray painted somebody's house, as though we had cheated on an exam, as though we had uh, um, you know beat up somebody, um, and react as we imagine we would react um, you know as things unfold. Um, Kyle, I, I have I'd like to interject here. Um, there's a, a question from the webcast that I think really relates to to this conversation here in particular at this moment. Um, and it's from Bonita. And uh, I'd just like to read it here. She asks, what adjustments do you suggest should be made for participants with additional or special needs? For example, those who find it hard to express themselves verbally or who have an underdeveloped capacity for empathy. She says she's developing inclusive restorative practices for youth with those who have particular issues. Um, I think LDH, she spells it out, and I think I can't read it quite from the sure. podcast here. But she, she's developing these inclusive restorative practices and is currently on a Winston Churchill Fellowship-funded study trip in Australia, and she's seeking out best practices. So. Yeah, yeah. I really thank you for that question, Bonita. Um, the first thing that comes up when I... When I think about it, is is the notion of who gets to decide. And as I, if I imagine myself either facilitating a process or creating a system in which um, in which the process will be used in the community, um, it seems to me that that I don't want to be in a position where I get to decide such things, because I can't possibly have enough information. So um, I'd want that to be part of you know, when we create a system uh, for the given community, and, and when I say community, I mean a family, uh, um, a JDC, a classroom, a school, a workplace, you know, whatever group of people decide that this will be one of the ways that they're going to handle conflict, um, that in the process of setting up that system, that this is the question that, that people engage in trying to figure out. Um, so that's a way of... Uh, being evasive, I suppose, and so I'll be evasive another way. Um, I don't even know that I want the system to figure that out rather than the specific individuals involved. Um, so, you know, depending on the disability, the person uh, himself or herself might be in a position to speak to what they need, what accommodation they might need in order to participate. Um, and then I imagine that... Um, that whatever that whatever that request is, that you know we would try to make that happen. Uh, the goal is not to treat everybody the same. Uh, the goal is to create conditions where everybody can be heard and understood, and you know treated the same in terms of um, uh, you know not biased. Um, you know, but but just understanding and and then the action that comes from understanding. Um, and it seems like those individuals would be best equipped to, to uh, figure out what they need. Uh, and if the disabilities are such that, um, um, that, that that person might need support in figuring out what that means, then I'd want to include those support people that are already in that person's life, uh, you know, possibly parents, possibly caregivers, uh, who again uh, you know, know the individual and know what he or she might need to participate.
Great. And, Mikhail, one of the things that, that we did uh, last week with Michelle Alexander, we opened up a discussion board after the close of the council itself. And I'm wondering if we can encourage people to interact. I know there's going to be more questions and interactions perhaps than we can do in this hour's time. But uh, if, if people would go to dopeace.us to the discussion board, um, that's simply to dopeace.us, and then click on Discussions, and you'll find that there's a Restorative Justice on the Rise discussion board there. Uh, just want to invite everybody to that and hope that, Mikhail, you might be a part of that as well. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Great. Well, I know we have a couple other questions, um, hands raised, but let, let's just hold for a moment here and um, just like to, to seg into um, the very compelling uh, work that you do in, in race relations and wondering how we, I know that I, I mentioned the, the paper that you did with, um, with Dominic called A Restorative Approach to Interpersonal Racial Conflict, and that was published in the Peace Review, a journal of social justice. Um, and I'm just interested because we did talk with Michelle Alexander last week. Um, what, what your view is on connecting restorative practices to race relations and setting the field for that? Yeah, I, you know, I'm a big fan of Michelle's work, uh, by the way. I, I'm, it's really wonderful that you were able to get her on your show. Uh, and you know, I, I uh, read the, her book when it first came out and, and now talk about her work in the classroom. Um, I, I'm, I would love to see restorative practices in general and circles in particular uh, be used more to engage uh, both interpersonal and um, community level uh, conflict in general, but racial conflict in particular. One of the reasons that I uh, that I'm so excited about this particular approach is because well, there are two reasons. One, it it functions both on an interpersonal level and on a systemic level. So I get um, I I have gotten to the point where I get very dissatisfied with any kind of quote unquote intervention or solution or program or I don't know, uh, whatever you want to call it, that, um, that only deals with a specific incident without addressing the conditions and the context in which that incident took place. So what I like about restorative practices is that they are able to both engage the individual uh, interpersonal dynamics and by creating a restorative system in the community, uh, essentially create a, uh, um, a structural level community response so that if a school or even a classroom wants to become a restorative classroom, that's a structural change in terms of how that classroom or the school deals with uh, you know, acts of injustice or rule violations or fights. Um, and that has a lot of implication you know, because it keeps our you know, if Michelle was on your show, then then you know your listeners know that uh, there's a tremendous amount of disparity 
in our criminal justice system at all levels of that system in terms of uh, racial profiling by police and you know down to uh, the kind of sentencing that uh, um, that happens for similar types of criminal activity um, and the result of that is that if we look at the incarceration rates uh, they're something like 60 times higher for African Americans compared to white Americans um, and and incidentally for for all Americans regardless of race they've gone up something like 300 percent uh, since the 1980s as a result of uh, uh, of what was started at that point as the war on drugs. Uh, so the, so I love the, the fact that restorative practices provide a structural response. Uh, and two, uh, I love that they acknowledge the, you know, the context, that they in, involve community members and that they, um, that, they, that they don't pretend that whatever happened happened uh, in isolation uh, without, um, you know, sometimes uh, weeks of history, sometimes years of history. And in the cases of, of some types of racial conflict, I think it's reasonable to talk about 500 years of history of uh, racial oppression. Uh, and the restorative practices are able to hold that and have that as part of the context in which they take place. Uh, and so I really like that for them for that reason. Can you share with us a few of the key themes that you and Dominic um, provided in this paper, which, again, is a hot link to the, at the discussion board um, at the very top there. You'll see uh, the, not only that paper, but also the, the Tikkun article. Uh, but ju just if you could, could give us a little bit of an overview of, of the key principles in, in that paper as it relates to um, what we're talking about right now. Sure. Um, one of the, you know, I'm not holding the paper in front of me, so I may start talking about something that's not even in the paper. Uh, but for for me, one of the one of the key principles, and again, one of the ways in which restorative circles, um, the restorative circles developed by Dominic and and company in Brazil, are different from many restorative practices, is that there's an explicit uh, and necessary involvement by um, by those who are identified as a conflict community. So in the case of uh, you know, somebody saying or doing something that is perceived as being racist, uh, not only is the person who did it and the person to whom it was done present, but also people who were impacted by what happened. Um, and sometimes the people who are impacted are, um, you know, are people who were present at the time that it occurred Sometimes there are family members or, or other close relations of the people who were involved who were impacted by, by what happened. Sometimes, uh, as in the case of Trayvon Martin, uh, you know, we have a country full of people that I think feel impacted uh, because there's something about what happened that, uh, that, that they can relate to. You know, the, I think you know, one of the most memorable parts of, of, uh, of that event and everything that has transpired since uh, was Barack Obama, our president, who's essentially, who essentially got elected um, on a post-racial platform and who has almost completely declined to speak about race, uh, actually commented that if he had a son, he would look a lot like Trayvon. Uh, and I think that was the experience of, uh, of, a, lot of uh, a lot of people of color, a lot of African Americans, who, who when they heard and learned about the, the incident, uh, saw themselves and their family members as um, very well 
could have been in Trayvon's place. Um, and and I think, uh, um, go ahead. No, I, I'm just really, I'm really glad that you're bringing up the Trayvon Martin case because uh, we actually haven't brought brought that case up on these councils yet, and um, it, you know, it didn't come up with with Michelle Alexander last week, but it's such an important thing to talk about even still. And I, you know, at the time I was thinking after the fact, uh, how how can this case be something that would transform the conversation, transform the system? And it seems like we completely failed in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, tr the I mean, it, it's too early to, to really predict no. what will happen uh -huh. there. But, but that case is reminding me a little bit of the O.J. Simpson case. Uh -huh. in the sense that uh, it really polarized the country along racial lines in terms of public opinion polls. Um, everybody's sure they know what happened uh, and what, what people think is largely determined by how they identify racially, uh, number one. And number two, that uh, you know, I'm kind of anticipating uh, a long, drawn-out uh, criminal trial followed by another uh, civil trial and... Um, you know, at the end of it, uh, I'm guessing that, you know, almost everybody feels dissatisfied for one reason or another. Um, you know, we, you know, what is it that, uh, um, you know, what's the best thing at this point that could happen to, to Trayvon Martin's family? Um, you know, probably some kind of, you know, if I imagine myself in their place, um, probably a public acknowledgement of, uh, of responsibility whatever it was, uh, not guilt, uh, but responsibility. This is what I did, and here's why I did it, um, and, um, and here's how I feel about what I did. Um, you know, so ideally, some remorse about what happened, um, and then uh, an expression of willingness, uh, authentic, uh, genuine willingness to, to do something to, um, you know, you, you can't bring Trayvon back, but what can you do? Uh, what can you offer, uh, George Zimmerman? To, uh, to contribute to the family, to the community, to the country, to prevent uh, maybe something like this from happening again. Um, you know, can we have that conversation? Can we include Zimmerman and his, um, you know, and, and you, know, his, you know, the people that are, um, you know, associated with him and, and Trayvon Martin's family? And, and can, can we have a conversation about how they can go forward you know, as a small group and how the country can go forward to, to make something positive out of this. Uh, to me, the criminal justice system has no chance of making that happen, but a restorative system uh, gives that possibility. How would a restorative system, um, so to speak, break through even now, I suppose, into um, providing that conversation that you've just described to happen? Is that possible? Well, it's possible, and you know, so right now, the criminal justice system creates conditions for people to deny wrongdoing. Uh, like I said, it 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 makes uh, it creates conditions for people that might otherwise speak the truth, for them to, you know, like for them to lie and deny what happened. Uh, if you create a space where everybody has the shared understanding that that space is not to um, identify 
uh, not to blame or punish, but to find ways of moving forward and other people speak their truth, then the logical thing in that system is to speak yours. Uh, there's no guarantee that that will happen, but it creates a possibility that it could. Uh, and to the degree that people are willing to speak their truth, then there's a possibility of, of connection um, you know, on the basis of that truth, and then the possibility of finding ways to move forward. Uh, and and you know, there, there are examples of this happening. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there's, there's the, um, there was a circle in Seattle that in some ways, and, you know, I'm, I'm writing a, a book chapter drawing parallels between the case with John T. Williams, uh, a Native American woodcarver that was killed by a white police officer in Seattle a few years ago, and the Trayvon, Trayvon Martin case, um, one, of course, that's being handled by the by the typical criminal justice system, and, and the John T. Williams case uh, was handled restoratively um, using a process uh, you know, very similar to Dominic's restorative circle process. Um, and, and, and that became a public event in the sense that uh, the circle that, that happened between the family members and the Native American community and the police department uh, and other city representatives, that the agreements made during that circle were released to the public, and they include four pages of, uh, you know, exactly the sorts of things that if you were, um, that if we let, uh, you know, all the, all the folks listening to this call, if we set them loose and say, imagine the best possible circumstances for what could happen after a tragic uh, killing like this, um, you know, a lot of what they would come up with was what the circle came up with. I, I really appreciate you bringing up that that particular case in Seattle because uh, I I'm actually just hearing now from Andrea Brennicky from that group up in Seattle that she'll be joining us in the near future here on this council. So I just want to um, just acknowledge the fact here that we're we're getting close to the top of the hour and the close of our council tonight. And in, I'd like to invite anyone who might like to ask a live question or make a comment at this point with Mikhail um, to just go ahead and press one on your keypad. And while while people are doing that, Mikhail, could you could you just speak a little bit more about this book that you've just referred to that I've heard a little bit about? Um, what's coming up for you in the future, and uh, specifically to this book and anything else you'd like to share? Sure. You know, I could do that, Molly. And, you know, my cell phone just uh, just rang, and it's it's Andrea Brennecke. So we could call her up, and uh, I'm wondering if she if she's listening. Shall we do that? Oh, that's great. <laughs> sure. Um, why not? Uh, although we are at the top of the hour, so I, I just want to be – uh, respectful to people's time tonight in the council. Um, sure. Uh, if she's calling and you have her live and you can pass her in, that would be wonderful. Yeah, let me see if I can uh, get her on. So while you're doing that, I'm just going to go ahead and, and again remind everyone that uh, t tonight's council is uh, a weekly weekly council that, that is brought to you by the Peace Alliance and would encourage you to go to the dopeace.us website. Um, you can find a restorative 
Justice tab there that gives you all the information about this series. Next week's guest is Carl, Dr. Carl Stouffer from Eastern Mennonite University. I'm really looking forward to him joining us. Um, and he also is working with uh, one of the so-called grandfathers of restorative justice, Howard Zare. They'll be rolling out a, a telecourse series of their own um, upcoming this fall, which is very exciting. And so Dr. Carl Stouffer will join us next Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific. And all of the audio recordings for this series are also posted um, as soon as they become available at this same website. The discussion board is a place for us to go and talk more and also interact with our special guests. So it's just a great pleasure and honor to, to be in this council with you all and um, to have uh, Dr. Mikhail Lubienski with us tonight from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Mikhail, did you have success patching her in? No, she, she didn't respond. And I see that, it, that okay. it's, it's 8 o'clock, so it's probably just as well. <laughs> well, to, just to close tonight, Mikhail, could you just tell us a bit about your upcoming book? Um, what are you writing about and anything you'd like to share um, in closing tonight? Sure. Um, so it's a, it's a team book that I'm writing with three other people. Uh, um, and it's called, um, oh gosh, what is it called? Um, I think it's called Social Responsible Psychology for a Global Age. And what we're trying to do is, is take psychological scholarship and knowledge and apply it to, um, you know, the real world, but not in terms of like, uh, you know, individual level dynamics, but to, we're trying to apply it to uh, the social problems, including issues of, of uh, you know, in the criminal justice system. So we have chapters on nonviolence and restorative justice and, um, and um, chapters dealing with, uh, um, uh, with gender discrimination and racism and uh, trying to see how we can use what we have learned as psychologists to, um, you know, to address those problems. Wonderful. And, and uh, just one last little tidbit from you, if, if I might. Um, for those of us in council, and of course this recording will be posted, who are interested and haven't quite yet made uh, the, in, the move to implement restorative practices in their own lives or, and or in their communities, what do you feel would be the first step and where are the resources for people? Oh wow, what a what a question. Um I think the first step is is just uh um you know, it all starts within, right? So uh you know, as you engage in the in the journey and I see myself as uh you know, being very uh in very early on in my own uh process um just to start to engage in your own way of thinking restoratively and seeing the world restoratively. Um, and and once you start doing that, then the next thing that'll happen is you'll start to respond to the world restoratively, uh, and then things will sort of snowball. Um, I really see it as as a to me restorative practices um, more than anything else have become kind of a spiritual process. It's a beautiful way to close tonight, and um, on a on a more practical. Um, that interweaving level of the, of the inner and the outer, 
people could certainly um, visit Dominic Barter's website, which, of course, we've had wonderful conversations with him in this council, uh, and that's restorativecircles.org. And uh, I just want to invite everyone to please continue the conversation with Mikhail at dopeace.us, clicking the Discussion tab, and you'll see a Restorative Justice on the Rise room for that purpose. Thank you so much, Mikhail, for being with us tonight, and look forward to hearing more about all that you're up to in the world. Thank you for your dedication to these practices. And to all of you that have come from all over the world tonight to be with us, thank you. And we'll see you next week with Dr. Carl Stouffer. Thank you again, Mikhail, and good night, everyone. <laughs>